Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Jeremy Cliff in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin in Washington, D.C. It's Friday, the 24th of July. Welcome to World Review from the New Statesman. Thank you for joining us. Emily, what is happening in Washington apart from it being very hot, I see? It's very hot and tempers have also been rising. The, the big drama in D.C. this week was that Representative Ted Yoho yelled at and cursed about Representative Ocasio-Cortez, who then gave a dressing down for the ages on the floor of the House in which she talked about how men can't use being somebody's father or husband as proof of their decency and really took the moment to set an example for women in her community and across the country. I would encourage listeners to watch the speech. It was really something. And how's Berlin? Berlin is fine, although staring down the barrel of a second coronavirus wave. We've got over the wave before most places in the US or the UK did. Uh, So we've been living here kind of in a a sort of quasi-post-COVID existence for longer than most. But there are signs that the numbers are rising again in Germany and the spectre of new restrictions. So people are kind of enjoying the freedom while they still have it. With that gloomy comment, let's move on to our next segment, which is what Emily, do you think was the moment in the past week that is most historically significant? I will once again be a cliche of myself and pick something from the United States. This week, the U.S. closed the Chinese consulate in Houston, Texas, and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo gave a speech about China and and you know the U.S. versus China. So I think that we will look back at this week as sort of a, a shift in, or maybe escalation is the better word, in U.S.-China relations. And what is your moment of the week? My moment of the week was the conclusion very early on Tuesday morning at about 5am of the EU's recovery fund and its long-term budget. There was a big wrangle between particularly sort of the the Franco-German duo backed by the southern countries with what are called the frugal four, so the four northern states who were most resistant to, to this kind of big package of measures. But they got a deal and it is a big step forward for the EU. It's not perfect, these things never are, but it's a 750 billion euro package, more than half of which is going to be given out in grants rather than loans. And it sees Europe borrowing together to support its sort of common economic foundation for the first time. So it is it is a step forward. It's not enough, but it is, I think, a, a mark of the EU's resilience. And I mean, you know, at the start of this crisis, I wrote for the New Statesman in, in April that, you know, the endless choruses of 
European doom every time the European Union is put to the test are often proven wrong. The story is often more complicated, and that was the case this time around too. So worth watching what happens next, but I do think it was an important moment. Uh, With that, I'm really excited to introduce our guest this week, who is Elif Shafak, a British-Turkish novelist, academic, essayist, and activist on issues including human rights, women's rights, freedom of speech. She writes for the New Statesman quite regularly, and she's written for us this week with a really incisive argument about Recep Tayyip Erdogan's decision to turn the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul from essentially a museum to a mosque. Elif, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much. Let's start by talking a bit about that article because, and actually what's happening. I mean, it's, as we record this, it's actually today that they're starting the conversion, aren't they? Could you talk talk to us a bit about Hagia Sophia as a building, its history, its cultural significance, and why this decision is, as you argue in your piece, so alarming? Yes, I think it is alarming. It is an important decision. And also it's a completely political decision, which is very worrying. Uh, Hagia Sophia is a very unique building. You know, there's no other building in a way that has a history so complicated, so multi-layered in, in the sense that it was built by under Byzantine Empire. Uh, it was Justinian's big, big dream. And for about 900 years, more than 900 years, it was a church. It was an Orthodox cathedral, actually. Only for a brief time when the Crusaders came to Istanbul, it was turned into a Catholic cathedral. Other than that, it was an Orthodox church. And then when Ottoman Turks conquered Istanbul, it was turned into a mosque. For about 480 years, it remained a mosque. In 1930s, by Atatürk, under Atatürk, it was turned into a secular space, a museum. And so for about 80 years, a bit more than that, it remained a secular space. And this is a decision that Erdogan is right now trying to abolish completely. So he has turned it into a mosque once again. And today we have seen a big prayer. It was almost like a political show. And I find it very worrisome because the the way it's being done, I mean, I don't know if you've seen the news, but the head of the Ministry of Religious Affairs, he was there with a sword in his hand. In a way, they're saying we have gained this place, we have earned this place with our swords. You know, that kind of rhetoric is something that I find really alarming. Yeah. I mean, it's this reference to Turkish history that I assume is kind of meant by this gesture with the sword, for example. I mean, often Erdogan is compared to, or his aspirations are compared to a sort of neo-Ottomanism, a desire to revive Turkey's Muslim Ottoman identity that predated the sort of secularization under Atatürk. Do you think that's that's the right way to look at it? Because I've I've read cases both for and against using the kind of neo-Ottoman frame to look at Erdogan. Of course, neo-Ottomanism is quite broad and so many things can be woven into that. And that's the way they do it. So, for instance, one big thread is ultranationalism and the paranoia, the conspiracy theories that ultranationalism always brings along. My generation, we in Turkey grew up thinking that we were a nation surrounded by water on three sides and by enemies on four, that we could never ever trust anyone and that the only friend of a Turk could be another Turk. So there's that kind of rhetoric going on. Added on top of that is a is a rhetoric of Islamism, religious fundamentalism, and also what I call an imperial nostalgia, you know, which is not only seen in Turkey, 
in many other countries, unfortunately, as well, it is present. But this idea of a golden past that never was, that we should go back to those good old days, and the one-sided version of history, it, it almost never occurs to, to that narrative, to people who defend that narrative. How would I feel if I had been a minority member? You know, How would the same history seem or feel like? if it were told through the eyes of a minority. So it's, it's a very one-sided history that we're learning at school. Exactly as you say, this is happening all over the world. But before we move on to the, to the rest of the world, this point about history and the rewriting of history and nationalism, exactly as you say, they go hand in hand. How in Turkey do you see that manifest? Obviously, we have this, the, the museum turning into a mosque, but are there other examples that you have looked at and, and said to yourself, yes, that's what they're doing. They're rewriting history to awake the the national present? And also, why do you think it's so politically effective? We need to bear in mind that uh, the present government, they have been in power for a very long time, actually. It's been around 18 years now. And when they came to power, they came with very liberal promises of reform. And the longer they stayed in power, the more consolidated their power. They turned more inward-looking, more nationalistic, more religious, and more and more authoritarian. So at first it was gradual and then, and then with a bewildering speed. And the examples are abundant everywhere. I mean, one thing that immediately comes to my mind is that they increased the number of students graduating from religious schools, you know. We don't need so many imams. That is the truth. We need scientists. We need people, you know, in many other fields of life. But this kind of investment only in religious schools or turning secular spaces into religious spaces is a pattern. And we see it again and again. And if I may add this, I think it is particularly worrisome for women. And it's not a coincidence that we have seen an increase in cases of gender violence and domestic violence. Because, again, this is a pattern. Also, history shows us that whenever, wherever we see an increase in ultranationalism, religious fundamentalism, or populist authoritarianism, we will see an increase in sexism. We will see an increase in, in patriarchy and also an increase in homophobia. And this is exactly what's happening at the moment. I'd like to ask a bit about Erdogan's role in this, because this looks from the outside like a, a classic distraction technique, a classic stunt used to fire up a kind of culture war debate to distract from other issues going on. And it it seems to me that the the paradox with Erdogan at the moment is that in many ways, he's actually a weaker political figure. I mean, correct me if you think this is wrong, but it it seems that he's a weaker political figure than he used to be in the sense that, you know, he, he, he pushed through this referendum, giving himself new constitutional powers. He has tightened his grip autocratically on the country. And yet you look at it today, there are deep economic problems. His own ministers have have splintered off in a couple of cases to form new parties. There are signs that his popularity is not the same, not what it was. You have an opposition figure now holding the mayoralty of Istanbul. And you and then you have his his response in the form of these bombastic acts. So transforming Hagia Sophia into a into into a mosque again, sort of saber rattling in Greece's direction. I mean, arguably, you could you could talk about Turkey's important role in the Libyan civil war in the last few months, which has really changed the changed the sort of the dynamics there. And speak, I think, to this sense of to, of, of Edwin trying to restyle Turkey once more as a sort of dominant power in the Eastern Mediterranean. Are these just attempts to distract public opinion and use sort of nationalism to distract to detract from his own political difficulties? 
Absolutely, it is. And, and, and I think you're very right in pointing out that he's much, much weaker right now. But the problem is, I mean, demagogues, when they feel weaker, they're always looking for tools to use to consolidate their base. And oftentimes those tools are nationalism or religion or a, or a strange form of jingoism, which is exactly what's happening in Turkey at the moment. And you're very right in pointing out that Turkey, unfortunately, has been struggling with economic decline actually for a very long time now. Many people have suffered from that. Already, unemployment was quite high before corona, and now with the pandemic, it has worsened. So there are lots of problems for the government. They're losing their ground. In the last local elections, the opposition won all the big cities, including Istanbul. But the government, they cancelled, they just declared the local elections in Istanbul void just because they didn't like the outcome. And so there was a rerun. And again, the opposition mayor won for the second time, this time with an even much, much larger margin. So clearly they're losing the big cities and that is worrisome for them. And when I say they, maybe some of your listeners might not be aware that there's a coalition in Turkey at the moment. So it is the the AKP with the MHP, which means it is a weird combination of religiosity and Turkish ultranationalism that we're talking about. That is what is in power right now. In the AKP is Erdogan's party. That is correct, yes. Absolutely. I mean, where do you think things go from here? Because, you know, the direction of travel seems to be kind of an ever more autocratic style of, of leadership, an ever greater drift of Turkey away from its neighbours, particularly in Europe. I mean, people forget that Turkey is still technically an EU accession country. I mean, it feels like a, a bizarre uh, relic of, of, of kind of an optimistic era over a decade ago now when Turkey was seen as a, as a potentially on a path to, to EU membership. Do you see that continuing? You know, Turkey throwing its weight around more in, in, in Syria, in Libya, around Cyprus and the sort of the kind of the maritime border with Greece? Or can the opposition actually kind of use its, its recent advances, use, for example, as you say, the fact that it now holds the mayoralties of all the major cities to rein him in? Or even, you know, would it be too optimistic to start thinking about a post-Erdogan era? Or is, it, or is that just pie in the sky? I mean, there's no doubt that Turkey is a very complicated country and, and a very important country. One thing that I would like to highlight is Turkey has regular elections. It is not a democracy. Russia has regular elections. It is not a democracy. All these cases show us that for a true democracy to exist and to thrive, we need more than the ballot box. What has been incredibly damaged in Turkey is all those additional components such as rule of law, separation of powers, free media, independent academia, women's rights, minority rights, all of them have been incredibly destroyed in Turkey. So to to me, it's very important to understand that when we only rely on the ballot box, we end up with majoritarianism. And from majoritarianism to uh, authoritarianism, it's actually a very, very short slide. Now, do I feel pessimistic or optimistic? To be honest, when I look at Turkey's politics and politicians, I do feel more demoralized because they cling to power, because they have destroyed separation of powers, that monopoly of power is very worrisome. It dominates everything, every aspect of life. On the other hand, when I look at the people, when I 
connect with people, talk with people, listen to people, then I feel much more optimistic. And when I say people from all walks of life, women, minorities, you know, incredibly resilient, open-minded, there are many such people in Turkey, Democrats in Turkey, maybe we don't hear their voices as much, maybe they don't make the headlines, but they are there. So it is really a very complicated country. In the long run, I would feel optimistic about Turkey, but in the short run, it's quite demoralizing, all that's happening. These phenomena that you're describing, the erosion of rule of law, but continuation of elections and leaders who say, well, look, we're we're elected, coupled with the rewriting of history for the furtherment or expansion of nationalism and nationalistic parties, that's not just happening in Turkey. We're seeing it in Hungary, where just this week, Index, one of the the last major independent publications in Hungary, the editor-in-chief was forced out. And last I saw, 60 out of the 90 staff members resigned. You know, rewriting of history is huge in Orban's Hungary. Hungary is the has to be the victim of not the villains in history. In Poland, you know, you you have these heated debates about the role of Poland in certain 20th century atrocities. And then you have presidential elections where state media says, well, Duda's opponent is going to make us beholden to the Jews and Duda wins again, sort of different way you have it here in the United States, right? This battle over Confederate memorials and, and the naming of bases. But on the other hand, as you say, Turkey is a complicated and unique country. So when you look at all of this happening around the world, do you see it as different manifestations of the same phenomenon? Or do you see it as different events happening in different countries? I think until quite recently, actually, there was this assumption that some parts of the world were safe and solid. These were established democracies. And I remember when I used to live in Istanbul, a female scholar uh, from the States telling me that it was very understandable for me, a feminist, because I was living in Turkey anyhow, you know, I was because I was living in Turkey. And I never understood why the person who was saying this to me was not a feminist herself. You know, she was living in America and we need feminism everywhere. But what I'm trying to say is, I think, we can't take it for granted. And maybe for a while we divided the world into solid countries versus liquid countries. Perhaps after 2016, we do know better that there's no such thing and we're all living in liquid times. In 2017, Freedom House, you might remember, published a report that pointed out 35 countries across the world had made progress, which sounded like good news. But then the next paragraph said 72 countries, twice as many, had been going backwards with a bewildering speed. And I think that is where we are. Of course, there are differences as you move from one country to another, but there are also patterns, and that is very alarming. Uh, Hungary is is an incredibly important case. So is Poland, so is Brazil and India, and the list goes on and on. It's very long, and in almost all of them, it's not a coincidence that free media, free and diverse media is attacked, under attack, and then the judiciary, academia, Also, women's rights and LGBTQ rights. So as we've seen in Poland, for instance, just this year, a couple of weeks before in Hungary, there was a big, big march, neo-Nazis chanting racist slogans and telling the Romani community to, to leave the country that is their home. So always they pick minorities, always they find imaginary enemies. And that pattern, unfortunately, is going on in country after country. One follow up to that. 
you know, I remember after the 2016 election saying to somebody that the United States could go through what Poland was going through in terms of the the independence of the judiciary being under attack, the independence of media being under attack and, and being told, well, that's ridiculous, Emily, because we're a much more established republic and it can't happen here. Do you think that as we've moved from 2016 and you speak to to Americans, to Brits, to quote unquote, Western academics and writers and so on and so forth, do you think that people are now appreciating that this can happen anywhere, that it's not about one leader, it's about political trends and publics and what can happen if we're, if we're not alert and vigilant about our rule of law? Or do you think there's a sense that, well, you know, Trump will go and America will go back to normal and, and look, Britain's already figuring its, its post-Brexit life out and so on and so forth? Yeah, I, I think you're very right. And, and maybe we see both trends, because on the one hand, the number of people who have realized that we need to be more engaged more alert, more aware of what's happening. And we, in that regard, we need to become more active citizens. The number of people who are now saying this has increased. But at the same time, there are these old cultural stereotypes somehow at the back of our minds that still make us think that, well, you know, some countries are less developed and it will take time. But if I may go back to early 2000s, that was the optimistic assumption of late 1990s, early 2000s, anyhow, that history could only move in one direction. Mm -hmm. It had to be linear, it had to be progressive, and those countries that were not as developed at the moment will somehow sooner or later catch up. That was our perception even in our dealings with China. It didn't happen that way. In fact, China, yes, improved its technology and made incredible digital progress, but not necessarily in its democracy or embracing liberal pluralistic democracy. So those kinds of assumptions are wrong and history doesn't necessarily move in one direction. And I think it has shown us that it can also go backward and, and countries can make the same mistakes that their great-grandparents had made generations before. So I wouldn't take it for granted. I wouldn't say that it can't happen here. I would say the opposite. It can happen anywhere. Yes, you could say that it's been a very bad few years for the Whig School of History. One thing that really stood out to me, Elif, in your uh, New Statesman piece was a couple of lines you write about history and, and what sort of history is taught in Turkey today. And I'm actually, I'm actually going to quote it quickly. You write, the way history is taught at school and propagated through popular culture systematically erases minorities, multiplicities and truths. What was life like for women in the Ottoman Empire or for slaves or for Armenians, Jews, Greeks, Alevis, Romani, Kurds, heterodox mystics, anyone who was pushed to the periphery? What were their stories like? That quote which refers in this case to the backdrop to the decision to turn Hagia Sophia back into a mosque, I think also captures something that's going on in a number of other countries. I mean, we were just talking about Central Europe, Hungary and Poland, you know, two countries whose historic identities is, is actually, in both cases, very cosmopolitan. You know, one of the things that always strikes me about Hungary in particular is that it was for a long period, the hub of a really multi-ethnic empire you get glimpses of that in today's budapest you know the, the 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 links to the balkans the jewish history the the links to germans and ukrainians and russians and all, other other peoples from all over europe similar story in poland too but the histories that are being taught in those countries and the identity that's being propagated by orban and in hungary and by law and justice in poland is absolutely sort of monocentric and mononational and monoethnic 
and is essentially a process of writing that that cosmopolitan history of Central Europe out of the history books. And it sounds like something similar is happening in in Turkey, where the kind of the, the multi ethnic, cosmopolitan aspects of of the country's history and of the deeper Ottoman past are just kind of being written out of the story. And you know, there's a similar process in which Emily's written about the way that Indianness is being refined down to this sort of one size fits all. Hindu nationalism under Modi. You know, we could even talk about the, the the persecution of the Uyghurs by China, another group that don't fit into a kind of anti-cosmopolitan vision of of that country's identity. And I suppose my my broad question to you, as a Turkish person, but also as someone who writes about so so eloquently about identity and belonging and about how we see the past is and I suppose this also comes down to my classic question which is which is optimism or pessimism but do you think one can come back from that can a cosmopolitan history be written out of the history books but then readmitted to them or is it a case of once it's gone it's gone you know my fear particularly looking at Hungary and the way that the bits of the past that don't fit into its modern political story are being excluded is that memories do fade and aspects of history that used to be passed down from generation to generation in schools or through families, you know, hit a kind of a cul-de-sac or hit a kind of a hit a hit, hit the hit the buffers and can't then be re- revived, you know, even, even if the politics changes. Am I right to be so pessimistic? I, I do share your pessimism, I'm, I'm afraid. So everything you said uh, resonates with me. And I think memory is a responsibility. It is incredibly important not to get stuck in the past, but we have to learn from the past. And and I say this as someone coming from a country where there is collective amnesia. I think Turkey has an incredibly rich history, complex history, but at the same time we are a society of just forgettings. We forget everything. It's a huge void, which is then filled in with nationalistic or religious interpretations of history. But it's always about erasing that cosmopolitan past, which, as you said, was a huge part of who we are. The same in Hungary, the same in Austria. It's interesting that countries or or territories that were once upon a time parts of empires are going through that kind of nationalistic rewriting of the past more intensely today. So I would also include Russia into that picture. And I find that imperial nostalgia very, very important. Can we overcome this? Yes and no, in in the sense that all nation states at the end of the day, they have their official version of things. They have their, you know, censored, sterilized version of history. And in that regard, Belgium is no different than India or, or, you know, there are big similarities. But I think where there is a big difference is between a democracy and a non-democracy. In a democracy, you can easily walk into a bookstore and buy books or find publications, read in newspapers articles that challenge and question the official narrative and say, wait a minute, what about her story or his story? You forgot about women. You forgot about minorities. You know, can you please look at their stories now? And the writers of those books or the journalists behind those articles are not prosecuted. In a non-democracy, it's much more difficult to find pluralistic, diverse interpretations of history. So I think we have to fight for that diversity. For that, we need both investigative journalism, but also I believe we need literature. We need the art of storytelling because that that is how we as human beings emotionally connect. Mm. And that is one way of overcoming the huge limitations and censorship of official historiography. 
I have one last question for you, which is that you've mentioned, I've been very happy to hear you mention women specifically a few times and how women are going to get caught up in this, right? If you have a history that is based on patriarchy and that is based on only the strongest, physically strongest get to tell the story, women are going to be left out of the retelling of the past and they will be hurt in the present. What then do you make of women who sign up to be kind of agents of this rewriting of history? We have this a lot here in the United States, right? This is the, the white women who went for Trump in 2016. I think you see it in in every country, right? You, you have women who say, well, I, I want to go back to a traditional role or I agree with this ruling party. I obviously have my own sort of opinions on this, but, but how do you as a writer and a thinker and as a woman grapple with this and, and, and sort of work through it? Yeah, I think that's such such a great question. And I think it's incredibly important. We are at a very critical moment in time in that regard. I mean, even in Europe, when we look at countries like Spain, where we thought we would never see such things happening, um, look at the Vox movement, for instance, hiring buses, driving them around the country with pictures of Hitler and writing underneath feminazi, hashtag feminazi, and accusing feminists of being Nazis. Or we have seen in, in Italy family conferences supported by evangelical money in which Salvini and, and the likes of him have talked about family values and saving traditional Italian family from the grips of feminism. You know, I can go on and on. So there are very alar- alarming patterns in the sense that there is a backlash, in fact, against both women's rights and also the rights of sexual minorities. I think we need to be aware of that. On the other hand, because patriarchy is so complicated, I think we need to have honest conversations among ourselves with regards to the gaps that keep us women apart. So when it comes to race, when it comes to class, ethnic divisions, cultural divisions, how do we communicate? Do we have enough sisterhood, empowerment? That to me is an important conversation as well. To be honest, I would love to have the kind of women's movement that definitely goes hand in hand with LGBTQ rights movement, but also goes beyond and brings men on board. Mm-hmm. I think we need to talk about masculinity and how masculinity can be a straitjacket for men. So again, coming from Turkey, what I have seen is patriarchy makes definitely women unhappy, but it also makes men unhappy, especially young men, especially if you don't conform to that given description of masculinity, your life can be very difficult. Anybody who looks different for whatever reason is going to have a difficult life. And sometimes, unfortunately, it can be women who put pressures on young men to behave more manly. So we need to have these conversations, multi-layered, nuanced. I think it is good for us, healthy for us. But at the end of the day, I do believe when women are badly divided, the only thing that benefits from that is patriarchy itself. So we have to move beyond political divisions. I think it's particularly interesting to me to hear what you say about the the detrimental effects that it also has on masculinity, because I think that is that is something that runs through a lot of these sort of macho strutting illiberal leaders is on the one hand a kind of kind of aggressive campaign against what they see as the sort of ground loss to feminism in the last years. But on the other hand, it's kind of you you just need to scratch the surface to see the kind of the intense kind of defensiveness and sort of sense of vulnerability. You know, it's all about masculine pride and dignity being stolen away or being kind of undermined it's it's this 
curious mix of, of kind of aggression, but also intense insecurity. There's an interesting piece to be written, I suppose, about the kind of you know, the gender politics of this sort of paranoid victimhood complex that unites so many of these kind of macho strongmen type leaders. And, and we have seen it in the in the way in which they failed to answer to corona crisis, coronavirus crisis. No, I mean Bolsonaro did the same thing in Brazil. We have seen in country after country, including Trump, as if they can't. You know, all these macho leaders they don't want to wear masks. They belittle the virus. They belittle the pandemic. And overall, across the world, women leaders have dealt with the virus in a much more efficient way. Definitely. Now that we have successfully gotten a discussion of toxic masculinity in our world leaders into this podcast, we are going to move on to our next segment, which we like to call You Ask Us. Very good, Jeremy. Our question today comes to us from at Bicker Record. And the question is, what are the relative chances of the UK affecting beneficial change for A, the Uyghurs, and B, the Rohingya? Explain your workings. Thanks. Elif, do you want to take that first? I think... In general, it worries me that human rights, freedom of speech and how minorities are treated, all of these have become secondary issues in the dealings of the West with other parts of the world. And that to me is a very problematic pattern. Human rights is not a secondary issue. It can't be postponed. What is going on in China with the Uyghur minority is alarming and this has been happening for so long all those so-called re-education camps and blocking information. We need information. We know enough to understand that this is an atrocity. It is a genocide going on there. And yet the world is very slow to respond. The same thing happened with Rohingya. And also, if I may add this, particularly with the, with the Rohingya genocide, we have seen the role of social media and Facebook particularly mm. used as a damaging tool, you know, to incite hate speech, slander, misinformation against vulnerable minorities. And I think we need to have these very serious, very urgent conversations and actions against tech monopolies as well. Absolutely. And I mean, the way that social media has been used to spread hatred, I mean, the, the example of the Rohingya is just is is just appalling and, and terrifying. And, mm-hmm. and I think also speaks to the, the utter lack of responsibility taken by the social media companies themselves. On at Bicker Records, a specific question about what the UK can do. It's only fair to say, you know, this, we, we, we often kind of uh, voice passing criticisms of, of kind of the British government on this podcast and in the New Statesman generally. But it is Worth pointing out that, that there has been a positive step in last weeks, namely the introduction of a system of sanctions named after Sergei Magnitsky, a Russian lawyer who was essentially beaten to death in a, in a Russian jail in 2009. And this, these sanctions essentially allow the British government to impose specific sanctions on those believed to be involved in human rights abuses in the governments or uh, kind of the officialdoms of other countries. And so these seem to particularly take aim at uh, Russian officials, but it's also, I, I know that leaders or officials from Myanmar and Saudi Arabia have also been in their sights. And there, there is discussion also now about, serious discussion in London about extending that to cover officials from China and Hong Kong to protest both the new security law that clamps down on freedom in Hong Kong, but also the treatment of the, the Uyghurs in Western China. China. So that is a, a genuinely positive step forward by the British government. And, you know, if, if, if the UK wants to make good on this rhetoric of global Britain after Brexit, then this is the right direction to go in. So a thumbs up to that. But I would qualify it by saying that, you know, a lot of this response 
would be greatly strengthened if the UK would work more with the EU on it. You know, the EU has a, let's face it, patchy record sometimes on, on standing up to human rights abusers like the Chinese government. But it is a much larger force than Britain acting and speaking on its own in the world. And Britain does have allies across Europe on these issues. I mean, here in Berlin, Norbert Röttgen, the leader of the Foreign Affairs Committee in the Bundestag, has strongly supported the UK's kind of outspoken criticism of the Chinese government and criticised his own government for not doing enough. And so there is a kind of network of allies around the EU that Britain could work with on this and really increase its its voice on those issues. So putting my well-documented broader scepticism about Brexit to one side, I do think that now's the time for Britain to, yes, kind of step up its 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 voice in the world on these human rights issues, but not stop the fact that it's leaving the EU from allowing it to form alliances with its European partners on this. I would add two things. First, I remember being at a holiday party in DC and I was speaking to somebody about the importance of human rights. And this guy pops up and is like, well, we can't talk only about human rights. And I just looked at him and was like, well, we don't talk at all about human rights in this city, right? They're, they, they, they hardly ever seem to be at the forefront of our considerations. And that is wrong. That should be part of what is guiding our foreign policy, not a secondary or even tertiary concern. And secondly, I will say that, you know, if the Secretary of State and, and British leaders and, and quote unquote Western leaders want to speak out about human rights in China and around the world, I commend them for doing so. But that that is undermined when they do not have credibility about human rights in their own countries. And so I would encourage those of us who live outside of China, for example, to push not only for vastly improved treatment of the Uyghurs and not only for, for their plight to be at the, again, at the forefront of our foreign policy, but, but also to consider our own countries as ones in which human rights can be abused. Can I just ask you briefly, Emily, since, since you're in Washington, I mean, you know, the, the mood there has turned a lot more critical about China on, you know, on both sides of the political divide in the last weeks and months. And I'm not just talking about the kind of the Trump administration, but the kind of Washington policy world more widely. Do they see in the UK a kind of natural and reliable ally on these subjects? Interestingly, I think the thing that got them to see Britain as a reliable ally on this was Britain's stance on Huawei, right? And, and saying, oh, well, we're actually not going to, to let China run our 5G network. Mm. Mike Pompeo was in London this week and was effusive in his praise for that decision. Right. And so I think the short answer is yes, the United States does see the United Kingdom as an ally on human rights issues. But I think it's telling that it was a business slash national security decision and not specifically a human rights decision that prompted that praise. With that, should we move on to our final segment in which we'll look ahead to next week? Elif, would you like to kick us off with the event or development next week that you'll be uh, most looking out for in world affairs? I don't know if I'm deviating from the question, but I think because we're living in a world in which every day we wake up with this feeling that something is going to happen, it's just full of uncertainties. I do make a distinction between maybe information, knowledge, and, and, and hopefully ultimately wisdom. I, I feel like we we live in a, in a in a world in which we have too much information, like a bombardment of information, mm. but less knowledge and even less wisdom. So one of the questions that I ask myself is, how can we decrease the information that we deal with? Because I think we can't process it; it's just too much. But yeah. increase the amount of knowledge we we get, and in, hopefully ultimately increase the amount of wisdom that that we attain. For that, I think we need books, we need stories. You know, I don't want to follow information that much. Sorry, did I just, you know, answer the question in a very... No, that's a great answer. And it puts my answer to this question to shame. I was just going to say that the hush starts next week. 
it doesn't mean that we shouldn't follow what's happening just because of course we should follow but i just wanted to make that maybe little distinction between information and knowledge but if i may add um, one event that i i mean one of the many events that i find very important is this the world awareness against human trafficking world day of awareness is coming up mm-hmm. and i think that is a very important time when we should every day but especially on that day we should be talking about human trafficking it is accelerating it's happening everywhere and i'm worried that especially with the pandemic and its consequences it's going to become even worse particularly for women particularly for children most of human trafficking is based on sex labor and and labor so i think it should always be at the forefront of our discussions yeah it's striking how the the crisis has often or the, the the pandemic has often taken hold particularly in those those parts of populations that are the most vulnerable you know it's really exposed the weak links in a kind of society's coherence and 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 cohesion and i i think yeah that that makes absolute sense and i appreciate the the, the broader thought about the distinction between information and intelligence i think that's a a very useful one to take into the next week and and all weeks. Emily, would you like to, to to give us your thoughts on the Hajj? Yeah, I was just going to note that the Hajj begins next week. And it, the reason that it's worth looking out for is that this year, because of the pandemic, they've limited the number of people who can go or number of pilgrims to around a thousand. So how this actually works and, and the way in which that changes the nature of this will be, I think, worth watching. And Jeremy, what will you be on the lookout for? I'll be looking out for the emergency meeting of the African Union. Uh, we haven't got a precise date for it yet, but it will be next week at some point to discuss the dispute between Egypt and Ethiopia. Ethiopia's close to completing a giant new uh, dam on the Blue Nile, which is the eastern branch of the Nile, a vast, vast infrastructure project that, that you know, bigger in scale even than the Hoover Dam, but which sets up a conflict with Egypt, with which Ethiopia has very tense diplomatic relations, and which is concerned that the that Ethiopia will essentially hold back the flow of the Nile in this dam, and ha- therefore kind of have a stranglehold on on Egypt's whole kind of system of irrigation and transport and so forth. The talks between the two sides broke down early this week, and it's now being escalated to a sort of a pan-African level. So it's definitely worth watching that, particularly as the sort of seasonal rains already are filling the, the, the dam and sort of, you know, certain points are being reached from which they can't come back. So it's it's could could escalate into quite a significant dispute. And I think also just speaks to this broader question of the kind of the new geopolitics of water. I mean, this is going to be a very big subject over the course of the, the next decades. And we might just be getting a foretaste of it in this in this dispute. So yeah, I'll be keeping an eye out for that. With that, I think that all remains is for us to say a very big thank you to Elif for your excellent piece of the New Statesman, which is available online. We'll put it on the website of this podcast and tweet it out again from our international Twitter account at Statesman World. And thank you very much for joining us on the podcast today, Elif. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this episode of World Review, please do leave us a review and tell your friends, acquaintances and sworn enemies about it. Absolutely. And as a reminder, you can subscribe to our World Review newsletter and follow all our international coverage at our international homepage, newstatesman.com slash international. Our producer has been Nick Hilton. Thank you so much for listening and until next week. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. 
Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Med- Medical plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 